The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the Ascent of Board Games. Uh, It sounds weird for us to say Happy New Year because we're actually recording this a few days after Thanksgiving. But when you hear this, it will be 2019, a new year of exciting gaming stuff. It will be Joe's birthday, so happy birthday, Joe. Happy birthday, birthday, future Joe. And we are going to be talking today about paragraph games yay yay frank and i have a a long and sordid history with paragraph games it's one of our favorite genres i may have been one of the people who voted in the poll saying this was an episode that we should do next only voted three times (laughs) brian you've pulled back the curtain on our podcast like three times in that intro it's it's weird it's like we we want to talk about things and we manipulate events in ways that we can talk about things we want to talk about Mm. paragraph games are well they're games that involve a lot of reading they're games with blocks of text where your choices either within those paragraphs or within the game proper affect what paragraphs you read and those paragraphs in turn may offer additional choices or will affect the state of the game in some other ways there are a lot of games that sort of use this as an element, but we're trying to focus on those where it's really a core part of what the games are about. In reviewing the games that we were going to talk about, it is kind of surprising how many of them had taken elements of this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of games that are stealing bits of this because it's ways to tell a story that is somewhat non-linear and somewhat organic and seems to flow out of gameplay a little bit. So obviously when we went into this, we knew that, you know, the sort of choose your own adventure style game book was a big influence on where these all came from. But I actually did a little bit of digging into the background and it turns out that the history is a little bit older than we thought. The first example of, I guess, interactive literature, if you want to call it that way, was from 1936. A play called Consider the Consequences, which was written by a young Ayn Rand, who (laughs) later went on to write some novels that are often misunderstood by politicians and inspire some (laughs) early Rush lyrics. Okay, now that is fascinating because Ayn Rand (laughs) is such an interesting figure in uh, modern literature. Yeah, it's it's like I was reading through and I was like, "That that is not a name I expected to come up in this context. Huh. Uh, but yeah, she wrote a play called Consider the Consequences, and basically the large part of it is there's there's a sort of a trial going on, and at the end of, I think, the second act or whatever it is, the audience gets to vote if the accused is innocent or guilty, and the end of the play differs based on what they chose. And no matter what they pick, the person dies? Is that how that works Well, that, that would certainly be a <laughs> No, no, no. I'm pretty sure they always pick for them to die because, <laughs> you know, blood sport. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. In the 1940s, Jorge Luis Borges was playing a lot with the idea. He had a collection of stories called The Garden of Forking Paths, which several of them sort of play with the idea. There were a lot of literary experiments in Europe in the 60s because everybody was experimenting in the 60s. But the first actual sort of game book series that we could find was a series called Tracker Books that started in 1972 in the UK. And they didn't really catch on for a while, but they were out there. In 1975, there was a release by Flying Buffalo called Buffalo Castle for the Tunnels and Trolls RPG, which is the first sort of solitaire RPG adventure we could find. So basically, you take your 
your role-playing game character or party of characters, and you go in and you choose to go through the left door, the middle door, the right door, and it tells you what you find, and you have to make decisions. And it's basically a choose-your-own-adventure book with a full RPG combat system behind it. Have you played Tunnels and Trolls? I have not. So with Tunnels and Trolls, you basically line up 30 million D6s on both sides of the combat, roll them. Whoever gets higher does that much damage that has to go to the other. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a Warhammer game to me. <laughs> yeah. We've come a long way in the game design world. <laughs> so let's see. The first uh, U.S. game book series was called The Adventures of You. It started in 1976. A couple of those were later put in the Choose Your Own Adventure series, which is the best known one that officially started in 79. And then starting in 1982, we had books like Fighting Fantasy that added in combat systems and record keeping and inventory and that sort of thing. As written by the other Steve Jackson. Yes, exactly. The British Steve Jackson. Interestingly, the Fighting Fantasy series also had several books that were written by the American game designer Steve Jackson. And they were just credited to Steve Jackson, so nobody really knew. Fascinating. Thanks, Joe. Joe, step off my catchphrase. Never. Never (laughs) once. There was a Steve Jackson series called Sorcery. It was basically four linked books telling a linked story that you carried your possessions over. The really neat thing it did that I enjoyed was there was a, a spell book, a separate book that you could get that had all these spells that described what they did and gave each one like a three-letter code. So basically you could spend as much time looking at that book as you want, but when you started the main book, you had to put that book away. And it would periodically say, do you want to cast a spell? And it would list a bunch of three-letter codes. Some of them were spells that would be helpful in your situation. <laughs> Some of them were not. Some of them were not spells at all. So you literally had to memorize your spells and know what they did. And I just thought that was a great great way to do it. Yeah. The Fighting Fantasy series had a lot of influence on everything. I mean, there's an RPG that's still around and still getting stuff, as well as a couple board games, at least two I know of, including one electronic one, which has a Omega virus brain as part of it. Interesting. When you said those were Steve Jackson, which Steve Jackson? They, they the were the UK okay. Steve Jackson. Uh, I will try and say his name with a British accent from now on. <laughs> Sounds great. I mean, like uh, in the kind of the choose your own adventure realm, certainly one of my favorite series is uh, Lone Wolf. Oh, yes. uh, I love so that good. series. Those are still my favorites, yeah. The Kai. Do you have the Sun Sword and do you choose to use it? <laughs> to which Almost answers, always yes. Almost always yes. <laughs> and those, if you haven't checked those out, are on a uh, website. Project that kind Aeon, of, Aeon uh, has basically a really nice online uh, implementation of all those books. And uh, if you're at all interested in the choose your own paragraph kind of thing, that I highly recommend going and checking them out. Yeah, he, uh, Joe Denver also, who's a, the author of those books, he also recently did a release of a role-playing game set in Magnamund, which I backed and I have all the stuff for because I just really like that universe. Yeah, so. no, I, I remember hearing about that. But we're here to talk about games, actual things that are played on a board. So there is one thing that happened in between these. Uh, a tiny little company called Metagaming in Texas. One of the designers is the American Steve Jackson because we can't get enough of Steve Jackson, apparently. Uh, they used to do like 3 and $4 little tiny bagged games. They did a combat and uh, magic system called Melee and Wizard. And they started producing a whole line of little tiny map encounter solo quests. This is not actually part of an RPG. So it's a question of whether it's a board game. Eventually it became the Fantasy Trip RPG. Which is actually re-released or in the process of being redone from by Kickstarter. By Steve Jackson yes. games because Steve Jackson, no yes. Brit, yes. Yeah, that's sort of venturing into board gamey territory. But the first sort of standalone board game thing we found, well, there were two of them. Both came out in 1981, both from SPI, Simulation Publications, which were, you know, sort of the, the groundbreakers in the board game area. One of them was called Return of the Stainless Steel Rat, based on the Harry Harrison novels. 
by Greg Kostikian, whose name will come up a lot in this episode. And then The Voyage of the BSM Pandora, uh, which was by John Butterfield and Ed Woods. I haven't actually played either of those, but I think Frank can tell us about them. They're strictly solitaire games. Uh, Voyage of the BSM Pandora came out in like Aries number six. These were both published in their science fiction fantasy game magazine, where every issue came with a game inside of 100 counters and a map. That's pretty much all you got, and rules just tied in the middle. BSM Pandora had you basically beam down on a planet to kidnap unsuspecting aliens and pull them into your uh, ship. You weren't tying them up, And then take them back and sell them. Uh, it was actually the <laughs> prequel to a game called Wreck the Pandora, which involves a bunch of alien menaces that you have on board your craft, just destroying the entire thing. So you see where that gets you. There were tiny little mini-maps for beaming down on the planet, and you wandered around, and when you encountered something, and we'll be hearing a little more about this later, you would decide how you wanted to encounter them. You know, did you want to be friendly? Do you want to try and negotiate with them? Or just try to capture, or just kill them straight out right? The stainless steel rack game pretty much has that same kind of reaction matrix where you choose your reaction, whether you want to be hostile or friendly. Most of the time in the stainless steel rat, things are hostile. The unusual thing about it is combat is always from the point of view of the character. So there's a giant circular map board and you move all the counters. So if you turn left, you slide everything to the right or whatever around the circle to indicate which side of you they're on. That sounds awful. (laughs) It really does. There's only two or three things on the board at one time because you're only one figure. Sure. But yeah, it's a weird thing. Having never read any Harry Harrison novels or anything like that. You should do that thing. Oh, totally. Just by looking at the copy of The Return of the Stainless Steel Rat, all I can tell about this universe is that people point guns at each other. Yeah, sure. Also lots skulls. And also lots of skulls. Guns. All computers run by skulls. So it's set in the Warhammer 40K universe. Clearly. Is what you're saying. Clearly. Okay. Yeah. Much like everything functionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Frank, I don't know why you're sighing at Decision Matrix. Those are amazing. Oh, I know. Nothing <laughs> bad about them. Also, interesting piece of information since we mentioned the Warhammer 40K thing. The UK Steve Jackson was one of the founders of Games Workshop. So and it's everywhere. Ties together. Like yeah. I said, when we were kids, role-playing games and board games were made by about six people. Yeah, clearly. So yeah, we had those guys. And then the first sort of boxed game that went into this concept was Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Originally 1982 by Sleuth Publications. It's been re-released by Istari a couple times in 2012 on. And then Space Cowboys just recently did one in 2017. I should point out that the original edition of this didn't come in a box. It came in a three-ring binder, a deluxe nice three-ring binder with everything kind of bound in it and shrink-wrapped. Okay. So kind of a fail on the whole box But it box wasn't a magazine. <laughs> it wasn't a magazine. It was a standalone. It was, it was a self-contained yeah. thing, yeah. Raymond Edwards, Suzanne Goldberg, and Gary Grady. So this is sort of the first of a, a branch of one of the recurring themes in these paragraph games is solving mysteries and crimes and that sort of thing. Yeah, basically Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective begats Mythos Tales, which is exactly the straight structure. You move around a map for the particular crime you're trying to solve at the moment. You have an encounter where you read things. Occasionally you may be forced to make a decision at a location, but mostly you're under time pressure how many paragraphs you can read to assemble the right ideas to solve the case. Uh, you'll see that flow together in, uh, again, Mythos Tales, Chronicles of Crime, and Detective, which we'll be talking about later. Yeah, those games are interesting because it's not a, like, hey, you go to a place and like choose a reaction matrix or have a comment. It's you go to a place and try to learn as much as possible because at the end of the game, you're required to answer questions that you have to have seen all the 
evidence around to be able to successfully answer, which is fascinating. Yeah, they sort of just tell you a bunch of things. And it's very sort of free form. You know, it's not like you're having to check off the boxes for murderer and motive and weapon like a clue. It's basically, here are what people are saying, figure out what actually happened. Yeah, the Sherlock Holmes, one of the first mysteries there is the setup is... Sherlock has already solved this case, but you as his apprentice, he just wants to see what your skill level is. So they send you out and it's just like, here are a bunch of people involved and their address. Go. Yeah. And that directory. That game comes with a directory of London. Yeah, that it's is literally like hilarious. the white pages. <laughs> Um, and it was interesting because it's sort of, I know there's like your score is based on the amount of time you take, but I think this is the first one that sort of said, well, just go around and ask the people. And when you feel like you're ready, come back to Baker Street and tell Sherlock Holmes what you figured out. Well, and that, that's one of the yeah, things. Yeah, but you're is... penalized for extra time. Over... Sure. Yeah, so sure. Much. But it's not like, you know, you need to figure out specifically X, Y, and Z, and then you're done. It's very free form, like I said. Well, no, and, and that that's actually a really good point because it is do as much as you want, like dive as deep as you want. And when you are ready, come back and get your score. And the longer you took, the more points you get deducted, which I really enjoy. Most of the other games put a time limit where, you know, time's up, you're done. Let's go to question round. Which I have feelings about. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Mike, yeah, you have opinions? I'm, I'm, I don't understand. Shocked. I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking in this section, but again, this is during my childhood and most of you people are too young to remember any of these things. The next series we wanted to talk about was the Ambush Games by Victory Games. The first one came out in 1983, John Butterfield and Eric Smith. These are also solitaire games. It's World War II squad combat. And I spent hours playing these as a child because, as previously, I didn't have any friends. Basically, the premise is you've got a, a big sort of hex map, and there are a couple different maps that you can combine together. And you're moving your squad from hex to hex in an attempt to accomplish whatever your current mission is, whether it be to capture an enemy officer or blow up a V-2 rocket station or take out the pillboxes so that the later infantry can advance. And basically, every time you move into a hex, there is a little envelope with slots cut in it and a little card that will tell you, all right, if, if I'm in A7, either it will say nothing or it will give you a paragraph number to look up or it'll say event and you need to make a, a random event check to see what happens. And sometimes you will see clues if you get to a certain location. It's like, OK, you can see this building. It looks like there's a German officer talking on the radio in there and it will spawn enemy models. And when the enemy gets a turn, because there's a whole initiative system, you basically look up the the hex that enemy is in and it will tell you what they do and it had this whole thing where there were different conditions like you know once the the alarm has been raised you go to condition two which is a different card so everybody's actions change and the things you see in the space has changed there was a lot going on in this game it had a whole campaign rule there are eight different missions plus the different expansions and your troops would get experience as they uh leveled up and were able to equip more lots of repayability to try the same mission from different locations just a, a really neat game with a lot of i think innovative ideas that i'm sort of surprised we haven't seen reused it was mechanically really tricky to manage all the conditions and everything from what i remember if anything, we've seen that kind of thing happen again, but it's been, the details are buried in the map. Sure. So we don't have to deal with that That's crap. That's true. I'm seeing some notes on here uh, that I guess Jason found that it was a re-release of this. Yeah, apparently in 1991 they re-released it. Huh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I was watching videos on how to play because I, of course, don't own it, and I could not believe how complex it was in terms of like the amount of options you had. 
this character is prone, now he's standing, and you have different, it, it will affect things differently. The metrics that you're talking about, they called the mission cartridge view sleeve, which I thought was yes. a hilarious name. <laughs> but like, it also seemed fairly like tense. Because like, you're literally, every time you move one guy in your squad, you have to check and see if something happens. And when something happens, the Germans pop up, and like, at least from what I was watching, it looks like you can die real fast. Based on what their actions are. Yeah, bullets are. kill people, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, there's there's two different phases. What they call operations and rounds. And operations, you're sort of moving freely, and then in rounds, they go to the initiative system. And sometimes, even if you're going around in operations, sometimes you'll go to a certain attack, and it says, "Sniper, roll a rifle attack yep. against yep. this soldier. Yep. Bang, you're dead." Yep. You know, so <laughs> they have the little tombstones you can put down for your dead yes, soldiers. Yes, it, it was lovely. <laughs> it, it's funny, right? Because. As we get into more of these modern games, you're going to find that a lot of that gets replaced by computers, but there really is something that is viscerally enjoyable about going to those decision matrices and just kind of looking up that paragraph number and then being like, oh God, oh God, oh God, I'm dead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So speaking of reaction matrices, the next game we want to talk about was Tales of the Arabian Nights. It was released in 1985 by West End Games, uh, primarily designed by Eric Goldberg, but also Brad Freeman, Doug Kaufman, Ken Rolston, and Kevin Maroney. And it is a big old bag of random. This is the 800-pound gorilla of paragraph games. It this was for the, sure the is. granddaddy. I love the heck out of this game. It is the most random game in the entire universe, as far as I can tell. Well, I would like to point out that you love the heck out of the 2009 version of this game. That is true. I do love the heck it out of the was, 2009 version It was version re-released by, was it? Uh, Z-Man. Z-Man. No, Z-Man. Z-Man. Right. Z-Man. Sorry, Zev. Sorry, added, Zev. Zev added another third of the book. There was a lot of stuff in the original game. There's like a whole separate uh, merchant trading game mm-hmm. that you can yeah. play on the board. That, that was in the terrible. original. It's he not took an, it out. Yeah, it's not yeah, it Because it was not as interesting as the rest yeah. of the game. The Z-Men version is beautiful. They did great things with the map and the cars and everything else. They streamlined a lot of stuff. The original one was just as random. But this was back in the early days in West End games, and I have a very strong physical memory of those old West End games because the decks of cards were literally on a perforated sheet of yes. cardboard, and you would punch yes. out the cards to and make the deck. half of them. So, oh, yeah, God. They, they, they were yeah. horrible. So West End games is interesting because basically as SPI folded, was bought by TSR, West End picked up a lot of the designers. And so a lot of the design credits and stuff that was happening in the Ares magazine kind of fell into West End. Victory Games kind of picked up the hardcore war gamers. Weston picked up the fantasy science fiction geeks. And you can tell, I mean, clearly Tales of the Arabian Nights is descended from BSM and the Harry Harrison game. I think this was the first game that I ever played where it was like a chill game. Like yes. usually in, in board games, random can be good or really, really bad. But in this game, it's just like, hey, you're going to sit down. You're going to do some things, shit might happen to you, and then you're going to be done, and it's going to be great. Someone will definitely become cursed to be a monkey that guaranteed that is going to happen to one person. Yeah, I, I, whenever I introduce this game to people, I just sit them down like, you're not playing to win, you're going to have an experience. Yes, just it's about it the journey, not the destination. And never get married, it's terrible. <laughs> Well, and and I think before I played this game, like that was just not a thing that board games had done in my experience. Like you didn't not play a board game to win. That was the whole point. Right. Yeah. I think this is the first paragraph game I ever actually played that was a paragraph game. Yeah. And this did a lot of things that we've seen over and over, like the idea of the reaction matrix. Well, I mean that you said that was in the It was in the other two games in Mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. But I mean, this is basically all right. Well, you encounter a disguised princess. Do you woo her or attack? 
attack her or rob her or trick her. I honor her, obviously. I pray at her. Pray at her is almost pray, always I a mean, good idea. Pray to Allah. Allah will always be merciful. Yeah, the game has an easy mode built in. Pray to Allah is the answer to everything. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> Although the other thing that this game did really well, whenever you receive your result of choosing your combination of the reaction matrix, you then roll a die to shift that potentially by mm-hmm. one. So it means that the same outcome is not going to happen for yeah, every if, time you do. Even if somehow you've memorized a certain combination of things, it's not going to always work that way. Oddly right. enough, most games, even modern games, still haven't worked that out. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah, and like they have a, you can get a master in a skill and then it allows you to pick any of the paragraphs if it has the, the skill that you have, which yeah. is really nice too. So you definitely feel like you advance a lot during the course of the game. You become more powerful, you get magic items, you get more skills, you might become a cursed monkey, you get sex change, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Like, you become a vizier. You become a vizier. Uh, you, but you always feel like you're doing stuff, right? You never. You get. You can certainly get to the point where you feel like, well, I'm never going to be able to win yeah. because you can definitely get to the point where it's impossible to win. But you never feel like you're not doing things, right? There's always stuff to do. Yeah, and there were neat places on the board, like there are places of power, like oh, the yes. the haunted mansion and the Valley of Diamonds and that sort of thing that you can see from the beginning of the game, but you can't get there unless particular combinations of things happen. So when somebody gets to one of those, it's always really exciting. Yeah. And unfortunately, it, it's not a perfect game because I will never play Tales of the Arabian Nights with more than four people. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. It, it yeah. says that it's a six-player game, no, but the not. downtime is just <laughs> ridiculous at that level. Yeah, it's too um, long. The the nice thing that this, I think, was the first game to do was that if you're going on an adventure, the person to your left is reading the paragraphs to you. So you can't see <laughs> ahead what's going to happen. And, you know, if I choose if I choose to attack this thing rather than be nice to it, you're not going to know what the advantage yeah, is. Yeah, what are. we tend to do is we tend to have the reaction matrix before the person in the paragraph book after the person. So the two player on both sides are involved in every player's turn. Mm-hmm. And so, hey, if you have four players, that means most of the time you're doing something. You may not be the person making the decisions, yep. but you're reading paragraphs and you're laughing at the fate of your poor friend and all that kind of stuff. So with four players, it, you de- it definitely moves at a good clip. With six players, it is very downtime can be Super long. slow. Yeah, there's no interaction really. It's yeah, there's not pretty really much I mean, there there were rules, at least in the original game, and I think there's something like it in the new version, where you can go and use your skills on other players. They still have some of that. Like you can, there's if there. you have medicine, you can like heal people who are like injured and stuff like that. But like it's it, it's it very is, light interaction. Yeah. yeah, it is really a solo game that you're all playing together. But but still tremendous fun. That's that's the first paragraph. Well, I know I had played Ambush before. It was the first multiplayer paragraph game I had played, and. Started a lifelong love affair with them. And it's always fun finding those those random scenarios with the reaction matrix that gives you options like, you're in the middle of a terrible storm. What would you like to do? I would like to drink this storm. Thank you. I'm really and thirsty. That's a valid option. Delicious. <laughs> totally. Speaking of lifelong love affairs, Frank has an interesting addition to the list. The Barbara Cartland, a romance <laughs> board game. Barbara Cartland, man. I'm the only one who's played this, much to I'm my so, shame. so jealous. <laughs> so jealous. Yeah, it's a very, very pink box by Mayfair that details your travels, trials, tribulations, and troubles of uh, basically being a romantic heroine in Barbara Cartland's universe. Joe, do you have the description still up? I have one please. right here. Oh, please. This is your your character card. Rowena Hansen. The exquisite curves of your slight figure give you an irresistible elfin loveliness. Your hair is the magnificent red of a Mediterranean sunset, and your clear green eyes dance with laughter. Annuity, eight shillings. Resourcefulness. Your fine silken hair is dazzlingly white, complementing your pale blue eyes that sparkle with excitement. You have a baby face that easily breaks into an enchanting smile. 
annuity nine shillings. I cannot imagine this game, but I really have a strong, perverse desire to play it. I desperately want to play it. We're doing like, that. I mean, Total nonsense. It is, it is very much Tales of the Arabian um, um, Boudoir. Boudoir. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, that's what, that's what, that, yeah, that you re- can see that resourcefulness, that resourcefulness which is a skill. Yeah, is yeah, a I, was skill. Like, I was like, oh, she has the resourcefulness skill. She is very resourceful. I hope virtue is one of the skills you can get. <laughs> this I don't this know really how does beg the question, why are the, this is an untapped theme within board games romantic novel board games it's only this game and love letter as far as i can tell oh no no, no. i've there's, got a couple more oh and then there's funny friends obviously but well um, yeah there's uh and then there's tanto quare the game about hiring kawaii <sighs> no, maids nope. uh-uh. and um yeah there's a whole we might have to do an adults only episode of uh <laughs> Wedding in Copenhagen. Oh, God. The player of your choice must move to Copenhagen. Play on any player. Which means that there's player interaction in this game. Yeah, it's just crazy. crazy. It's a step that. up from yeah. Arabian Nights. <laughs> it looks fascinating. <laughs> Joe, you're getting married in Copenhagen now. I have no Suck choice. It. I have no choice. It's exactly. definitely going to happen. <laughs> But the the other big one we want to talk about was another one from West End Games, Star Trek The Adventure Game. It's 85, another one by Greg Kostikian with Doug Kaufman. This is very much sort of a two-player game in the Tales of the Arabian Nights mold. One person is playing the crew of the Enterprise. One player is playing the crew of a, a Klaon battlecruiser. And there's basically a sort of enforced piece going on, and you're all traveling to these various planets and trying to win the locals over to your side in the ongoing Federation versus Klingon conflict. Pick which of your crew members will go down to the planet. You choose your reaction. The reactions can be very different because the Klingon side obviously tends to be a little bit better at, no, you will follow our ways now or perish. And the the Enterprise is much more, you know, a hippie feel good uh, (laughs) 1960s thing. Um, But the the thing that really got me about this game, because Joe and I got to play this a few years back, you know, the game itself is is perfectly fine. It's fun. There's a lot of exploring around. But this was a period when cross-marketing was in its infancy. So there is, for example, one of the planets you will go to is a world that is Arabian Nights themed. There are jinns and princesses and that sort of thing. When you finish exploring that planet, one of the paragraphs you get to is, if you like jinn and wizards, you'll probably like West End's Arabian Nights, which incidentally uses a system quite similar to Star Trek The Adventure Game. So there's about half a dozen planets that are literally just places to put in ads for West End's other games. But actually, all the planets in here were based on Star Trek episodes, and generally one of the three paths you got when you landed on that planet was straight off the TV episode. That's true. You do find, what's his name, Mud, and I think you encounter Khan at one point. And <laughs> When you landed on a planet, unlike Arabian Nights, which just has standalone, just little tiny episodes, when you landed on a planet, you kind of got a little story thread going, which was a bit of an enhancement over that. Yeah, it's a little more uh, internally consistent. But following the episode plot would sometimes seriously screw you over if you were <laughs> on one of the variants because they really tried to screw with you. How many sexy alien heroines do I get to save in this game? I didn't do the math. Oh, well. But, uh... An appropriate number. Yeah, what really impressed me with this game is the theming is so on point, like clearly done by fans. I mean, that's not terribly surprising, but just the, the integration of like the way that the different factions play. I was reading their, their rules, and if you have two Klingon officers on the same ship, you have to roll to see if they kill each other because they're vying for position. I'm like, that's genius. <laughs> and like when you send Federation commissioners down to negotiate with the planet, the opponent gets to choose which option they select because they're really bad at making decisions. Oh, the bureaucrats. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was like, that's so perfect. The only thing to be better is if you had like an admiral that's just a complete asshole because like <laughs> that's every single Star Trek uh, admiral. I was, I was very happy. And of course, the uh, 
box art looks straight out of the motion picture. I was like, yes. Yeah, the game is is very entertaining, and it's definitely, uh, you know, it's a great game. It's very entertaining. It's certainly fun. Yeah, West End was sort of the king of licensed games in this period. They had the original Star Wars RPG yep. license, which was still a really good game. <laughs> For Brian, some people, but. You, you've got the uh, adventure book with you there, and like they use actual shots mm-hmm. from the show. Oh yeah, no, they they got total access to the art assets and that sort of thing. Yeah, Weston had three Star Trek games I can think of offhand. Which like we've had modern licensed games that yeah. can't even get that part right. So well, I mean, it's all about what you get in the license. Right back then, when you got the license, you just got everything because they were like. Sure, you want to use our stuff to make some things? Sounds great. What? What's an IP? Yeah, exactly. board games. No, exactly. Sure, exactly. I don't know nothing about no board games. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm curious. Does the is the trademark say Paramount or does it say CBS? Paramount Pictures Corporation. Okay, so yeah, it was before even CBS had uh, rights to the TV shows. That's interesting. I did like also that there's no combat between the two vessels. They say do the the was it the Treaty of Organia, which is right out of Errand of Mercy. I was like, oh wow, that's again done by fans. I, I love little touches like that. I love thematic games, as you can tell from my collection. Yeah, no, clearly these these are people who want to do it right. And honestly, it's pretty well put together. Kind of moving on to taking paragraph games into the future. Mm. <laughs> we move on to a game that, that actually takes a lot of the, the game mastering or the, the paragraph indexing into a computer. Uh, it's Star Saga 1 Beyond the Boundary, uh, released in 1988 by Masterplay Publishing, designed by Rick Dutton, Walter Freitag, Andrew C. Greenberg. If folks are wanting to hear a lot more details about gameplay, we recommend listening to episode 3. But yes, uh, long story short, uh, what was interesting about the way that this game was handled is all of your decisions are done through the computer, and then the computer will spit out, read passage, blah, and book, ABC, whatever it was. And so it also keeps track of your status, where you are located, what items you have, and I imagine even keeps track somewhat of places you've been before. To, yeah, it, it knows, has to. It knows yeah. if you've been on the planet before. Yeah, not. this is the first time that we see all of the decision matrix and the looking up of things handled by not the players. So that's a huge step in this genre of games, and we're going to see that more as we move forward. There's less of a sort of decision matrix in this. It's basically, you go to a planet, here's five or six different things you can do there, but if you do the same thing on the same planet, you're usually always going to get the same result. Yeah. Four out of the five of us, everybody at Frank, are actually in the middle of a playthrough of Star Saga 1 now, since after we talked about it back on episode three, we were enthusiastic enough that we wanted to get it together. But yeah, great game, huge epic. We talk more about it in episode three. Jason, you had a reference in here that you were saying something about the uh, video game called Out There. I'm not familiar oh, yeah. with that. One. Yeah, so uh, again, I'd never, I had never played Star Saga uh, at all previously, and I hadn't really experienced any games like this. There's a, there's a, an app called um, Out There that's somewhat similar. It's not quite so much a paragraph game as a you're exploring and it randomly generates encounters for you when you get to these different planets. It's more of a resource management game because you definitely run out of fuel and you can just get stranded forever. But playing this reminded me of that. And I was like, oh, I wonder if there's some history there. Actually, I believe it's called Out There Sigma. Ugh. No, that was I, I played the original one before the Sigma was added. Oh, damn. <laughs> okay. I'm terrible at that game. Going old school. Oh, yeah, no, I'm awful at it. Like. Mm-hmm. All right, so our next game is a game called City of Chaos, which was released in 1996 and might be getting a release next year. It's been announced as a 2019 re-release. Anyway, the uh, original publisher on this game was uh, Monocle Games Limited, and designers were Martin Oliver and Colin Thornton. And uh, I think I've played this game, tried to play this game once with you, Brian. I think 
it was terrible. I vaguely remember it, but it was a really weird game from what I remember. No, you walk into a building, and then you look around, you pick up an item, and then you die. And you just do that over and over again until someone doesn't die, and then they win. I think you just described Dark Souls. <laughs> it is the Dark Souls of Borges, apparently. So, City of Chaos, I had gotten my, uh, my paragraph game addiction going. And I saw this other one was coming out from a whole new game company, and it was going to have a modular board, and it had all these decks of cards, and all these different things that were going on, and I, I ordered the game as soon as I could find a place that carried it. And I so wanted to love this game. But, like, even the art assets for this game were just horrendous. Oh. Weird, oh, no, I, I would love say. Them. The miniatures are awesome. Are you kidding? <laughs> with the distorted heads and everything? Oh, I, I didn't know what was going on with it. Caricatures, sure. Uh, they're oh, horrifying. They look like something from Punch Magazine from like the 1800s. <laughs> well, they're I mean, awesome. you know, very British. So the thing about City of Chaos is the premise is that you're in the city of Byronitar, which is a very sort of Steve Jackson, Warhammer fantasy kind of place. He's probably with a sort of somewhere. steampunk vibe. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> no, his stuff is usually better quality. Either one. So basically there are three or four different quote unquote sources of the chaos that's ruining the city. There's like a bunch of sorcerers that are doing things and there's a dragon somewhere and there's a necromancer, but they're all kind of in play in every game. And as you're going on, you may find things that are clues to one or more of those sources of chaos. And the premise is that you say, all right, well, I found this thing leading me to the necromancer. So I get all the things I need to get the necromancer. And then I go to the necromancer tower and I fight the necromancer and I win. What usually happens is you find this thing that points to the necromancer and this thing that points to the wizards and this thing that points to the dragon. And then you wander into the tower where one of those three things is before you have any of the stuff that you need. And it kills you. It's just too big and too random. Oh, and then you restart. All, over, All from scratch. over again, except that the map has been built out to some extent. I did see, uh, I was w- watching gameplay videos of it, and the, the combat seemed kind of interesting, where you have the the combat cards, and you get to choose the combination of defense versus the offense that you want to do mm-hmm. against the, the card creature, and then the, the, the monster just pulls a card randomly. I thought that was kind of interesting. I hadn't something I'd seen in, in these cute. sorts of yeah. games. Yeah, there are a lot of, of bits in the game that are very good. It just doesn't come together as a coherent There are so many crimes of design in the game. For example, you start out really basic, unarmed, you can barely defend yourself. And the deck of random encounters, which there aren't enough random encounters, kind of has a mix of, you know, easy things you could possibly kill versus things are pretty much going to kill you right out. It's all shuffled together in one big deck. So, you know, two steps out of the gate and oh, wow, you're dead. Start over. Yeah. So remind me, at what point do, do the paragraphs come in? Is it like after They're every cards, movement right? or? It's when you move into a square that has no monsters in it, right? That's uh, when you flip I believe so, yeah. Some buildings have paragraphs tied to them. There are some of the event cards that tie to decks as well. Okay. Yeah, and there is or actually the, the a book of paragraphs as well for things that are too big or, or too complicated to fit on cards. And wasn't there a specialized die that has weird arcane symbols on it and you roll that and it tells you what you're going to pull out of the yeah, paragraph Yeah, it's book, functionally right? the same as the the one two three four five six in Arabian Nights, but it has symbols on it instead. As far as I know, this is the only game that Monocle Games ever came out with, and so basically, this is clearly a labor of love from people who really liked things like Arabian Nights, but didn't actually know a whole lot about game design, and really could have used an editor and a developer. Yeah, maybe that's what this this reprint. Will... I'm, I'm hoping the re-release will come out now. So, I... The copy is pretty funny, actually. Oh, please, please. <laughs> in 1996, Monocle Games, with designers Martin Oliver and Colin Thornton, released City of Chaos one of the first true storytelling games to hit the market 
And now, 22 years later, Ares Game has announced a new edition of this groundbreaking classic. In City of Chaos, one to six players travel the city of Byronitar, solving mysteries, building their characters, fighting monsters, and dealing with random events. The city is built one tile at a time, and together with the random plots and world generator, players are ensured a unique experience every time they play. City of Chaos was also one of the first games to use a look-up Book of Paragraphs stories, a mechanic adopted recently by such masterpieces as Tales of the Arabian Nights, <laughs> Above and Below, and Near and Far. Them's fighting words, folks. Finally, players deduce how to win the game from clues left in the paragraphs they read. I just thought that that wow. was a particularly oh, wow. appropriate. Oh, that That's a particularly ballsy. egregious example of revisionist history folks also yeah, really. brian i've got some bad news for you it doesn't sound like they're really yeah, changing yeah, really very much I'm, I'm, I'm not especially hopeful yeah it's a 12-hour game too oh mm-hmm. yeah if you actually finished it we made it oh uh, no we've never yeah, actually I've, finished I've never it. finished the, uh, <laughs> yeah. never finished the game now that said i have gone to a couple recent conventions I, i've dropped by like atlanta game fest and that kind of thing and i've seen people playing this game deliberately by choice Wow. I have a copy listed on my Board Game Geek library. I still own it. And I get people periodically asking me to buy it. Are you sure they're not playing What's it that? ironically? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh, it's a grail game. I mean, it's got There are so a ton much, of people yeah. who want this. Fools. No, I mean, like, uh-huh. there are a lot of mechanics in it that are good. I would liken it in a lot of ways to kind of like Kingdom Death or something, right? Where it's like, it's hyper punishing all the time. And so like, if you're looking for a paragraph game that's hyper punishing all the time, City of Chaos is that game. God, it really is the Dark Souls of board <laughs> paragraph games. But it's arbitrary. I mean, you can't get better. It's very random. Well, you, you mean, can get better. You, you, you can, can learn, learn more better things, in one but... instance of a game. You right. can learn where things are, because that's how you win. Yeah, true. Is you eventually reveal the things like, cool, I've revealed all the things. Now I can go get all the pieces and kill the vampire or whatever. Yeah. It's a it's a board game roguelike. Yeah, very much yeah. so. Yeah, true. Huh. It's an interesting yeah. way to put it. So yeah, there's a good game in there, but this isn't it. I don't have that kind of time in my life. <laughs> Joe, you were saying that this is a game that deserves to be better than it is. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, like, it has a bunch of super clever mechanics, and the way you go about defeating all the bads is always really clever and entertaining. The problem is, is, like, getting there is hyper-punishing. Hyper-punishing. Yeah, you have to basically wait until all the random factors line up correctly. And, like, when you have to restart and you lose everything, it really is awful. Yeah. So I don't have high hopes for the release, but I'm almost certainly going to buy a copy anyway (laughs) because I'm a I look forward to playing your copy. I don't think you do. So the next game we want to talk about is Time Stories, released in 2015 by Space Cowboys, designed by Peggy Chasnet and Manuel Rossi. And it is it's certainly in my top five favorite games of all time, and it might be the top. Wow. Because it is an extremely entertaining game. It is very clever. You are all part of a time-traveling agency, and you're sent back to deal with events that are being either messed with through some kind of time effects or dealing with other agents that have kind of gone back and messed up the timeline you're trying to put it right. And the core mechanic is you go to a location, you put out a deck of cards, which has a panorama of a location. And then each of the players decide, oh, I want to go talk to that interesting guy, or I want to go investigate this interesting looking picture. And then you flip the card over and you read what it says there. You're instructed to read it to yourself and kind of share with your fellow players what you see. And about half the cards give you either an option or sometimes there's a challenge you have to do there, which you can choose to do or not. The thing I like the most about the game is during the course of the game, you learn a bunch of things and hopefully take a bunch of notes about where things are located. And then at some point you run out of time. You're like, okay, hey, you 
you've run out of time, you need to restart. And when you restart, you have all the accumulated notes and knowledge you've gathered, so your second run will be way different than your first run, because you're like, oh, I didn't need to go look at that picture. I don't even need to look at anything in this first room. It's really boring. Let's get out of here and go somewhere more interesting. So we have to talk to this guy before we go pet the cat or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, I've always described it as sort of quantum leap crossed with Groundhog Day. Yes. <laughs> A little bit. And, and I think this game, like, I love me some theme. But this game does an especially good job of using the fact that if you go back and play it, you already have the knowledge from your previous runs to great effect. A lot of these games that we've talked about up till now, like um, Sherlock Holmes, suffers from replayability because the mysteries don't change. Like there are new people you can go talk to that you didn't talk to the first time. But this game really capitalizes on the fact that during your first run of a mission, you realize that, hey, you don't need to talk to Jason because Jason doesn't have any information for us that we haven't already learned. But we definitely have to go talk to Frank because Frank has the key that will get us into the kitchen, which is where the murderer is or something like that. I will say that it's been a very polarizing game because, I mean, you talk about replayability in a sense. Replayability is built in because in a session of a particular game, you may play through it two, three, four times before you get to the real ending. But once you've gotten to that, like any of the Sherlock Holmes games, you really can't go back and play that one again. That's true. And there have been a lot of people who are very upset with the idea that I paid $40 for a game and $20 for an expansion, and I can play this expansion once. I've definitely experienced that before. Um, I actually made, I purchased this as a gift for someone without realizing that to begin with. But I think as things like escape rooms become more and more popular, people are more willing to put up the money for an experience like that, that they are only going to have the one time. Sure. I mean, it's, it's $20 for three, four hours of entertainment with your friends. I like time stories. It is very, each adventure scenario, call it what you will, has, you know, its own kind of set of rules because they're all in a different setting. Um, the settings are all diverse. They're interesting. Some of them are real history based. Some of them are fantasy. Some of them are more horror. And they each kind of have their own rules for handling things. I mean, combat is different. Characters are different stats, different skills, that sort of thing. And some of those experiments are a lot more successful than others. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I totally agree with that. The first scenario that is in the base box, Asylum, is still one of my favorites. It's, it's, it's really, really good. It does yeah. a yeah. super good job of evoking the mood. And, you know, there are, what, about half a dozen mm -hmm. other episodes out? There is kind of an ongoing story being told in some of those episodes about the time agency and some mysterious shadowy conspiracy. It is a very slow process because an episode comes out every couple months. Yeah. yeah or a it's, quarter or six months. Yeah. It's been a while, yeah. Let me put some more fire on this bonfire <laughs> of my love for this game. Like, one of the things I really actually appreciate about it is each of the scenarios. And, like, they are, really, you can only really play them through once, like, making decisions, right? Because, obviously, once you've played through it once, you're kind of done. I've actually played through most of them twice, but, like, the second time, I would just watch the other players <laughs> play and just enjoy the experience. Just because I like the game a lot. But one thing that I thought the game has done an exceptional job at is each of the scenarios feel really different. And obviously they have different mechanics, but also like they have made extremely clever use of the time travel mechanic and the card mechanic to do things that are hyper unexpected in a number of different ways. Yeah, almost all of the scenarios have surprised me in some mm -hmm. fashion, yes. right, which I hyper appreciate. I do like this game. I'm a couple episodes behind, but I do want to go through and, and get caught up. The one other thing I will say is that they desperately need a better translator. Yes. <laughs> oh. The game is company problem. is French, and I'm sure the text in French is flawless. The English translations are 
erratic. Yeah, they sometimes uh, you can terms usually of bizarre, figure sure. out what the sentence means. But Space Cowboys, if you're listening to this, I would be happy to help you translate into colloquial English. Give me a call. Yeah, they just need to spend a little bit more attention on that, and it would be pretty much perfect in my mind. Right in my mind, that's a big hang-up. Is there's just some occasional idiosyncrasies in the cards that are like, what words are they trying to? Oh, I see what they're getting. I think at. I know what they mean, but especially when it's trying to tell you what you need to do to solve a puzzle, and yes. the words are weird. Yeah, there was one puzzle that like we didn't get initially because the words were so weird, and that was really frustrating. Yeah, and you know, let's just take for a moment to to really appreciate the amount of editing that goes into some of these books. Oh, like, good lord. We mentioned the book from Tales of the Arabian Nights where every set of three, really, it's even more complicated than that because of that fate die that can either bump you up or down one. Like, And there's some crossover where if you roll high on a seduce, it may be the same as uh, if you roll low on a befriend or whatever. Uh-huh. And like, hot damn, putting that book together must have been a freaking nightmare. Yeah, I actually did a little bit of editing work. There was a game that came out in 2012 called Agents of Smirsh, and I did a little bit of editing work for the guy who was designing it who was here in Georgia. And even just doing a set of paragraphs is super time-consuming because it's the sort of thing that it's impossible to go through and test all the permutations, so you just pretty much have to make sure every Everything is right along the way. Yeah. So big, big kudos to those who go through and make all this stuff happen. The same thing with a lot of the legacy type games. You know, you just got to make sure that any given combination of weird things that happen will result in a coherent story. Getting back to time stories a little bit, part of what makes the game work so well is that each of the different scenario packs, whatever they're called, they change the art. It's not the same artist every time. So the first one is Asylum, and it's kind of like a, I almost say gothic, but like very yeah, Victorian, dark, Victorian creepy, style yeah. art. And then the content redacted for spoiler reasons. One, it almost looks kind of comic booky. The important part is that the art reflects the theming of that scenario pack, and they do a spot on job on it. It's very impressive to me. Yeah, the production values of the game are great. They really went all out on this. I remember I was actually at Essen the year this was going to come out, and I went to a demo. And and they had like scheduled slots for their demos where you would go in to this sort of separate enclosed area on the show floor that they had and you would meet with representatives of the time agency who would explain your mission in character <laughs> and then they'd put you in and you'd play like a couple That's turns great. of the first scenario. They really went all out on it. But it, it's tremendous fun. It's got some flaws, but it's it's still a really good yeah, game. Yeah, one thing is the structure of this game feels a little bit more like a classic adventure game, you know. I'm waiting to see Guybrush <laughs> yeah. uh Curse on Monkey Island, yeah. yes. And it really is a, it's a much more guided experience than some of these other paragraph games because when all is said and done there's really only one correct pathway through the scenario i mean you've got a little bit of leeway because there are a handful of pathways but because you know dice variability Again, it's much more guided, whereas like Tales of the Arabian Nights, like who the hell knows what's going to happen? <laughs> right. Cause, no, no, cause no. That's way not more a story. Guided. That's just a right, bunch of way things. More this is definitely a story. Yeah, for sure. I like how each box, they try something new and they very obviously learn with each expansion that they put out. And the overarching story has been interesting thus far. And let's face it, Joe, you love this game because it's about time travel. That is certainly <laughs> one of the many reasons this game is in my top five. Like, I'm fairly certain I could give you a really crappy game, but make it about time travel. And you'd be like, give him a time travel yeah, adventure okay, I'll game. Try it. No, I no, see we'll, it. we'll give him U.S. patent number one. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. About time they do Time Stories Primer, we'll be happy. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. So our next game is um, actually a, a set of games that came out from the same publisher and developers 
Um, this is Above and Below, which was released in 2015 from Red Raven Games, and designer was Ryan Lucat, but was then followed up in 2017 by Near and Far. That is definitely the superior game of these two, but let's start with our experiences with Above and Below. In this game, each player is a village that is settled above a cavern of dungeons. And on your turn, you can either putz around in the village or go on adventures in the dungeon, which is where the paragraph elements of the game comes in. No, Mike, let's just cut to the chase, right? You can either win on the surface by doing boring stuff to get you points, or you can have fun in the game and lose by going into the cavern and reading paragraphs. Yeah, it's this really weird dichotomy because the adventures in the caverns are fun and interesting and weird and random. But because of that, you can go on adventures and get nothing for your troubles. Yeah, it's sort of like they took a relatively simple Euro game and bolted a relatively simple paragraph game onto it. And for me, I want to go do the paragraph things. Yep. But I have to do all this crap in the village to get ready to do the paragraph things when I should just be earning points. And that made me sad. That said, a lot of that was fixed in Near and Far. Yeah, Near and Far is by far the superior game for sure. Well, and the funny thing about Near and Far is it really does operate still off that same premise where there is a town in which you prep for your adventures and then there's a map that has a bunch of different points of interest where adventures happen. And I think with this one, they they took the points that you get in village and reduced them significantly so that while you're in the village, your primary concern is getting ready to go out on adventures. Yes. Which is what the fun part is, for me anyway, and for a lot of people. No, just in general, that's what the fun part is. And if I recall correctly, it's also a thing where you're sort of, the map is known, but you can't really get to the far thing, so you sort of have to gradually expand out the range of things that you can get to, which I think is a nice touch. And the actual game is a pretty decent adventure game. I mean, your character goes up by stats, and you're focused on getting and gaining those stats in order to get to the good adventures and everything, and the focus is solid. Yeah, and there's even a campaign mode where you've got a character that's got a backstory in their own mission that they're unlocking as they progress through the story. So there's even more flavor to it than Above and Below ever had. I have both games. When I played Above and Below... I, of course, focused on the adventure part because that that sounded fun to me. And I found, and maybe this is just the oddities of the random encounters, but I had consistently the same type of encounter over and over and over again. Inevitably, it'd be, you find a thing that's captured another thing, what do you do? And the amount of times that happened in our game was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I was like, is half this book just finding trapped or caged creatures and figuring out what to do with them? I think they were oddly obsessed with cats as well. (laughs) I'm also oddly obsessed with cats. For some reason, I remember there being a lot of adventures that were cat-centric. Yeah, the writing isn't as strong in Near and Far and Above and Below as opposed to some of the other games. It's pretty restrained as far as the things. Yeah, for sure. I think it was originally intended to sort of lure Euro gamers into more storytelling-ish things, maybe? Or Or vice versa. Or vice versa, yeah. I know there are a bunch of people who love Above and Below. I literally do not understand I am not one of those people. I don't (laughs) understand those people, Mike. At all. They can't exist in your mind space. They can't exist in my mind space. (laughs) 
Fortunately, it, it looks like they learned their lesson to some extent with, mm-hmm. I mean, near and far, it's by far a more interesting and, and entertaining game. I think they learned a lot of lessons, right? Like, it definitely feels like the paragraph mechanics are integrated into the game as opposed yes. to, like, sitting alongside the Euro mechanics, which is really nice. Well, and they create, like you said, Frank, the writing is not as strong in these games, and the adventures are a little bit more blunt, in my opinion, than some of the other games where it's just like, hey, there's an army there. What do you want to do? Fight, run, hide, make a roll, and you're looking for a TN number. I think that's one of the things in this these games is that every decision you make comes down to rolling some dice to see if you hit a target number. Although one thing they do is there is a lot of world building in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, because there's no board, and we'll hear about this later, there's a book with 10 maps, and you flip over, and each map has its own keyed encounters tied to that map. In fact, one of the campaigns is to play through all the maps uh, and just see what's there. And their world is unique. Like it it is cartoonish and adorable and the art really complements it. They've got this great water paint art style that's pretty unique. One other thing worth noting is that uh, your characters get basically followers or people that are in your party and they cross play. One side will work for above and below, one side will work for near and far. So it's kind of nice to see as they release games, they're still adding content to previous games if you want to play with those those components. So actual cross-branding. Sadly, does not make Above and Below a better game. Yeah, no. They did, they did release an expansion to Above and Below that had, I'd say, more varied encounters based on what I've experienced of it. So I think that was like kind of Above and Below 1.5 and then Near and Far is like 2.0 where it's a much better game uh, from the core. But uh, again, hey, I'll take a publisher that learns their lessons than one oh, yeah, just... No, <laughs> learning and, and doing things better the second time is definitely a sign of progress. Our next game is Legacy of Dragonholt, released in 2017 by Fantasy Flight Games. Definitely designed by the indomitable Nikki Valens with Daniel Clark, Tim Flanders, Annie Mitsoda, and Greg Spiritus. This is set in Fantasy Flight's very generic realms of Terranoth fantasy universe. And Which is, is the same one that's used in like RuneQuest and Rune Wars. Wars, yeah. Yeah. Wars. It's an yeah. excuse to reuse their art. Sure. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> Fantasy Flight loves that. that. Also Descent. It's all of them. And it's actually the first game in a long time since back in the 80s paragraph games that actually adds something new to the paragraph structure. Here you've got a giant book representing adventures in the town and then six separate books representing little side adventures or you know main quests that are outside the town. The rules are dead simple with basically the skill set of the Tales of Arabian Nights where you have the skill or you don't and you can get this paragraph or you don't and health points. That's kind of the entire game. In a lot of ways it has a really good thing because basically what it does is Although you have one thread of paragraphs and story, only one person can do one particular task. And then they turn their token over and they can't do anything else until everyone's gone once. And that bothers me a little bit because you're traveling along through the tomb of the fallen knight or whatever it was and you're all ready and the thief opens the door and then there's a locked chest in the corner but the thief can't open it because the other two still haven't taken their actions yet it's like well I have lock picks and trap detection but (laughs) sorry guys you need to deal with this because I'm tired from opening that door yeah my my wizard had the same problem (laughs) oh well I did this totally generic action and now there's this magical rune sorry guys my my tokens flip and it's not like you can just stall nope that's the paragraph you're on somebody's got to deal with that They make up for it in that there's so many branches to the story. Mm -hmm. Alternate things, there are paths you can't even comprehend. We screwed up majorly in missing the third book. 
Oh, so we completely skipped one of the side books. It's like, oh, oh, that that was that dragon attack people were talking about. Yeah, I, I see yeah, why all yeah. that is on fire Not that now. One, but, and, oh, <laughs> no, that's what I did. In my and no, life. it's totally covered in the main text of the rules. And man, you get slapped down for it. Well, that's kind of interesting. So does the outcome in the future change if you just don't handle stuff? Like if there's a dragon terrorizing the countryside and you don't go and slay it, yes. does that come back to bite you? Eventually you get to the end. Okay. But also the town book actually covers the seven days. So there's really seven days to the core. Mm -hmm. And the town book has alternate versions depending on what day it is. So there's different encounters based on when you go, what's happened previously. Yeah, like if, if you go to the CD bar at noon, well, it's not open. But you can go there till like, you know, 12 o'clock at night because it's open because it's the CD bar. Huh. And if you don't save the, you know, the baker from this certain thing that happens on day two, then the bakery is closed for the rest of your adventure. And just it's really well put together. Everything meshes beautifully as far as the construction of the storyline and stuff. I mean, it is fundamentally the same overall story of the town, but there are so many ways to get there. It has some replayability. Yeah, there's a giant matrix of checks, you know, checkbox a, B. At that point, some paragraph far in the future will go, oh, if box A, B is checked. Oh, I do love that. I know, Totally. Right? Yeah. And th- I mean, there are a hundred, maybe more of them. Um, this is how interweaved and complicated the story is. It's daunting. When we talk about, you know, how something like Tales of Arabian Nights came together, this has got to have been a nightmare. Yeah, I would love to see the flowchart of all the decision matrices. I, I, and I don't going. think we have enough dimensions <laughs> in our minds to process that flowchart. The, the one problem I have with this is I think it is best as a solitaire or, or maybe no, two-player experience. No, we did it four players. It was awesome. Well, sure. The problem I have is that someone who is taking the turn is reading the paragraphs. And this is not just sort of like a Tales of the Arabian Nights, here's three sentences. Yeah, no, they're lengthy. This is a page and a half of text that you're getting. And having everybody read that back and forth to each other can get really long and tedious, especially if if you have people who aren't great readers or aren't sure about some of the the terms that come up. Words are hard. Words can be hard, yes. So I think of it as a wonderful, complicated, choose-your-own-adventure book in game format. Um, And I played through it by myself. I made up three characters (laughs) because I'm an enormous nerd. I'm noticing a through line to your story. (laughs) I still don't have friends, Jason. (laughs) Thanks for bringing it up. I just wanted it on the record, so... So wait, even as you were playing at Solitaire, though, you still played multiple characters. Yeah, I think there are rules to do it as a single character. Oh, yeah, yeah. you get more skills. Yeah. That was what I was going to ask, is like, hey, if you're playing this by yourself, do you miss out on things just due to a lack of skills but if you're playing with multiple characters i mean that's how i did it but i mean you can play it as a single character and and like frank said the more characters you have the fewer skills each of them has but you know the character generation is pretty detailed you can choose your race and your class and the set of skills that you have it can have as much role playing in it as you want yeah the character generation is an entire book that goes into the history of tearing off all the races what each of the skills means yeah they were clearly yeah. laying the groundwork for a lot of future stuff and it unfortunately doesn't look like that's going to happen with yeah. ffg yeah thanks to asthma day nikki valence has left the company oh, everyone's left the company yeah. for fantasy flight pretty much yeah it's not really the same yeah. company anymore yeah. they proclaimed it as the first game using the oracle game engine ah there won't be another one so sad that is very sad because it's it's beautifully written it's really well put together there's some neat puzzles and things that you need to solve and it's not just here is the room here is a puzzle it's you're picking up pieces from different paragraphs and figuring out what things mean also some of the adventures 
go into just little side things about characters. There are a lot of minor characters. And sometimes you're just talking to them, attending like some kind of celebration, talking to people. Sometimes you get clues. Sometimes it's just revelations about an NPC. So, I mean, it really feels like uh, some kind of RPG well, so more there, than most. There's a good question for you because that seems like a shout out back to uh, Consulting Detective. But if you talk with a person in Sherlock Holmes that is not a part of your mystery that you're trying to solve, usually that will just be a punishment for wasting time. In this game, do you get penalized for going and saying like, well, hey, I really want to find out about this baker because I'm a baker and that seems interesting to me. Not as much as in Consulting Detective. So there is a time and you get like six or eight blocks of time per day. Basically at the end of each paragraph, it'll say whether or not time passes. And a lot of those fluff paragraphs, no time passes. I kind of like that because that that's like, hey, you're just here to experience this world. And I think that is a good design that it's like, hey, if you go do this thing that is not immediately centric to the the story that you're doing, like you're not punished for it outright. And in some cases, you may befriend someone who winds up being able to give you something useful later. So it really does, to some extent, reward just going around and looking at stuff and talking to people. It feels really immersive as paragraph games go. Yeah. I'm really happy with it. Again, I don't think I would play it with a bigger group just because the sheer amount of read aloud text and stuff is there. But it's a fantastic story and, and well worth playing through. All right, I'm in. Let's do it. Yeah, I actually think it's better than Star Saga. First game I would Ooh, ever say. Wow. That big words. Wow. Yeah. So I think what we need to do is find a way to get the books from this in PDF format so that when we make a decision, we can each just read through the text on our own and be ready to go on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, could, Frank, you, I, could I don't know if the microphone picked off Frank's <laughs> eye roll there, but uh, it was impressive. <laughs> uh, so the next game we're going to talk about is Detective, a modern crime board game, which was released in 2018 by Portal Games. Uh, designer Prezemisla Reimer, Ignacy Trezwizek, Jakub Lapot. Sure. Those are all those are all names. I apologize to literally everyone in Poland. Just like every every single person. So Detective is a game that kind of follows along the path of consulting detective and mythos tale, where you are part of a detective agency and you're set to go solve a crime. Much like Mythos Tales and Consulting Detective, you have a set amount of time to solve this mystery in. And you're given a variety of options. The way the game functionally works, right, is if you're, you're at a specific location on the map, if you want to change locations, that'll take you an hour. And anytime you do anything at any of the locations, it takes you some amount of time, somewhere between one and four hours. And generally, places that are in your main office take shorter time than things that are kind of on the outskirts. And much like Consulting Detective and Mythos Tales, you are trying to answer a set of specific questions by the end. And much like both of those games I mentioned a bunch of times before, right, you don't really know what the questions are. You have to kind of piece together the full picture. They give you kind of like an initial like, hey, here's the thing you're trying to solve. Go figure it out. And we played through a game of it the other day. And I really like the game, actually. It, it makes use of uh, a app really a website that you can load up on your computer or an iPad or whatever. Each of us had the app up on a different device so we could all see the same site. You, you just all log in with the same information and anytime anyone does anything to the site, everyone can see it. 
And so it's very easy to go back and say, oh, hey, I remember such and such a character. How is he related to this other character? Well, let's go look at how they're related inside the app and go kind of try to discover things. And, you know, each of the cards has a bunch of text on it. And there are opportunities like flip cards over, which give you even more text, but use like a set of resources that you kind of compile over the course of the game. I really like how this game utilized the website because what you're in essence doing is creating a database of the knowledge that you've collected through the cards, but it keeps track of a lot of that for you for easy reference. And so this kind of in my brain says like, hey, what if Sherlock Holmes consulting detective agency, but with a digital assistance via Star Saga to help you keep track of all these things? Even to the extent of, hey, we discovered this set of fingerprints at this crime scene. Later on, you find a set of fingerprints from this particular suspect. Hey, we already have these. These match. Now we know this suspect is at this location touching this item. I've actually played through the whole campaign with another friend of ours, and they do some interesting things in the later adventures. I mean, the nice thing is that the storyline that goes through the five or six core cases, it is an ongoing continuous story and it ties back to real historical events. So there are elements you'll find in these cases that say, hey, you might want to go look up Wikipedia on this particular historical thing that happened that I'm not going to name because spoilers. So it's a neat tie, not only with the physical app, but also just with the internet and people's knowledge of history. Some of the twists are more successful than others. I haven't played through, I've only played through the first one. That's why I'm keeping this very vague for you and for our listeners. For us, and this was Sean Molly and I, and Sean's a reasonably smart person. I don't think we successfully got all of the information we needed on any of the cases before time ran out. Because there are a lot of cases where, all right, you can go talk to this person or that person or go to this crime scene and go to that crime scene. And it's really kind of a crapshoot because one of those will give you a piece of information that will unlock a whole new line of investigation that may or may not be important to what you're doing. So there are times when you really just pretty much have to guess and hope you're going in the right direction. Yes, yeah, so like we're at an interesting point, right? So we played through it once and we lost the first time we played and we chose not to continue. And we had a long discussion around, we chose as a group, Mike was overruled. (laughs) Mike is making I'm the minority vote face. He was the minority vote. And we had a long discussion after that of like, hey, do we want to replay this again? And if we replay this again, what does that mean? Right? Because like, obviously, we know a bunch of things about the plot now. So there's like clues we could just not follow because we don't need, we know these are dead ends. But the game oddly kind of facilitates that in a lot of ways, right? Because it's like, hey, you didn't get the appropriate score. Do you want to replay the case? And what we decided was like, well, yes, we would. And I think it's interesting that they give you that option in general. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I said, we didn't get complete success on, I think we did maybe on one of the five cases. Right. But there was never a point where not having solved the previous one kept us from proceeding forward. I don't think having complete success on another case would have made a big difference. I mean, there are certainly things we discovered that weren't relevant to solving the first case that turned out to be important later. So I honestly don't know know what the quote-unquote right answer to that is so one of my biggest issues with this game and and this could just be because we've only played one scenario is that there is a a hard stop on when the game forces you to go answer these questions and in the game there is a stress mechanic so as you work past your given number of hours within a day you go into overtime (laughs) Because God forbid should our our detective agency work past four o'clock. Eight to four. Eight to four. These are hourly workers. We don't have overtime in the budget for this quarter. So that 
can add to your stress one per hour, but also doing things like pressing a interrogation a little bit harder than you otherwise would can cause your character stress. Okay, cool. That stress counts as negative points towards your score at the end of the game. However, it also counts as a hard stop if you collectively get eight stress or seven stress, you must stop you must go answer these questions with the information that you've gathered so far. And that seems like, I don't want to say arbitrary, but it seems really punishing that it is both negative points to your score and a hard stop. I feel like it works, first of all, from a mechanical standpoint, because otherwise you could just keep going forever until you had explored all the things and seen all the things. Well, but again, isn't the, hey, you will score negative points a deterrent for that? Because, like, sure, you could, I mean, but also you could just go through and read every single individual card in the Sure, game. but the other question is, maybe I'm just speaking for me. I don't particularly care if I got 50 points or 42 points. I care, did we solve the crime or did we not solve the crime and the therein lies are not a deterrent and me. therein lies my problem because when when joe and i played through this we definitely solved the crime we solved some we didn't solve all of it we solved some of it we solved enough of it that the game told us we did a great job <laughs> until we got but our stress then we failed because we got negative seven points for hitting our max stress which mike is like you need a work-life balance you can't <laughs> drive yourself to an early grave just because you feel a need to solve this crime. Technically, this is a European game. Technically, it those, be extra by Americans. <laughs> those extra seven hours we spent were literally rounding out a full 40-hour week. So. <laughs> but that's actually a very good point, Frank. It is a European game, and God knows Americans don't have off time. Uh, so they're, that's probably fairly standard for them is that they'll just go home at 4 o'clock. That goes back to my, my conundrum of replaying the scenario because I don't feel like we feel failed the scenario other than the fact that we had hit that arbitrary, oh, we're too stressed to keep going. I feel like if we had been like, hey, we're following this lead that will cause us to make more, take more stress with the knowledge that, sure, that's going to count towards negative points, but maybe if we go just a little bit further, we can get enough information to answer the questions better. That's what Consulting Detective Agency did way back when, is they said, go explore until you feel you're ready, but just note, the longer you take, the worse your score is going to be. Yeah, and I think in our game, it might have been a double whammy because ours came in the middle of like doing something where we got a stress we weren't expecting. And so that ended our day when we had like four hours left in our work day where we could have been doing other things. Right. So it probably felt a little worse because of that. And, you know, Joe brought up this point when we were talking about it previously. Part of that was on us because we were like, well, let's just go ahead and write up a report so we can get more authority so we can convert that into more wild cards so we can get more uh, options. We were so diligent on our reports. <laughs> so diligent. Without going into spoiler territory, there are situations in which the time limit and stress limit have very specific reasons for being the way they are. So the first scenario is maybe not the best example of that. Sure. But things will happen. I just think it's interesting that from a gameplay standpoint, we got to a point where the app said, hey, would you like to restart this case or not? 
yeah, that's that's interesting that they do. The thing is, you're only getting maybe half or a little more than half of the cards in a playthrough. There's, yeah, there's, that, there's that literally no really way yeah. to get all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what we talked about. We were like, well, there's a bunch of stuff we haven't seen, so we're okay with playing this again because we'll go yeah. in different directions. But it's interesting that like the game, from a design standpoint, reaches the point where it says, hey, you just played through this thing and you did not succeed. Would you like to restart? That is a thing that they offer you. So yeah, I think that's, it's interesting, interesting from a design standpoint. We had a large conversation, like, do we want to restart or not? And it was contentious because like there was a lot of conversation like, well, what kind of information do we carry over from the first game? to the second game and all that kind of stuff because it, it is in hyper unclear it's hyper unclear right yeah. in the game it doesn't really have any rules around it right it's just like you fill the case if you want to restart click this button and you will restart so there is a very specific mechanic that's kind of interesting some cards from cases will carry over to future cases so if you find certain things you will move take cards from that yeah. deck yeah. and move them into future cases I, mm-hmm. I love that mechanic like that felt really good where we followed up a lead <laughs> and it's just like all right put this in a future thing Thing. It's probably not important. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Yeah, but, but like, that's actually an interesting question. If you do the replay, because it says to re you re you reset all cards, including cards you added to future. Cases. Oh, so it does tell you yeah, it does find do a full okay, reset cool. of the cards that you got from this case. What's really interesting there is there's all sorts of cool things that they could do. Where like, hey, if you're interviewing this one person in case number one and you push them too hard, like perhaps in a future case they're not as willing to cooperate with you. Like. Oh. Which is a really interesting (laughs) thing that they could do. There are some super clever things going on in this game. It's not 100% successful in all the things it tries to do, but there is some really neat stuff, and I'm keen to see expansions and future things that they do. I feel like the next generation of this game is going to be really interesting. Now, let me ask you all this. If the stress weren't also negative points like if it was just when you get to seven stress you are done go answer your questions like would that have changed things because again i feel like we did well enough on those questions that the only reason we failed was because of the amount of stress we got work-life balance mike (sighs) okay 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 what i would say is it's your game or Joe's game or whoever's game it is. You should put in whatever house rules that will make the experience sure, more fun. Sure, sure. Bring your own fun. No, I got that. I'm just, I'm fascinated from a design standpoint as to why that mechanic is in there. And like, maybe it pays off later. I don't know. I think they wanted to punish you because none of us are able to pronounce the designer's names correctly. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I blame Joe for that mostly. Yeah, Fair. it's real bad. So the next game is a game I've, I've, I've borrowed from Frank and have yet to return. Stuff Fables, released in 2018 from Plat Hat Games, designed by Jerry Hawthorne. Essentially, you are taking on the role of a stuffy, which is a stuffed animal that's protecting a child at sleep from nightmare creatures. This is one of what they call their adventure book games, where inside the single book you have the rules, the story, and the game boards for each of the different scenarios. Essentially, in the game, you're drawing dice from a bag. It will determine what kind of actions your stuffies can take, cooperatively playing, trying to accomplish whatever the scenario says. Sometimes you're trying to find an item. Sometimes you're trying to defeat monsters, whatever you're trying to do. But the the story element comes into decisions that you make while you're investigating things. You know, do you want to go to this point of interest question mark thing, then talk to these other stuffies and get some information about what this little stuffy town is all about, kind of following along the lines of what the scenario is about. Yeah, but also there are some, persons of interest cards wow that's the wrong thing to say (laughs) that basically give you an a b choice you go talk to someone and how do you want to respond a or b and because they're evil 
a lot of the cards are duplicates where A and B are flipped, <laughs> where it's the evil twin of the mm. same good person, and you really don't want to be nice to them. Does the storyline sort of branch? The storyline does branch in a few cases. It's not a massive amount, but in some cases there's go to A or B or C. You may have to go back to B and get something. Eventually you may have to go to all three, or you may just skip A entirely. But in a lot of cases there's, you know, you're in a hallway, you've got three exits. Each exit leads to a different page. This is a follow-up to Plaid Hat Game and Jerry Hawthorne's Mice and Mystics. Well, not really a follow-up, but a spiritual successor it's, maybe. It's got adorable written all over it. If you look at, I had to paint the miniatures. Oh, yeah. They're, they're beautiful. He did a great job. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Jerry Hawthorne and Plaid Hat Game Adventure Games. Like they have had amazing production value and just chocked full of character and adorableness. Like I'm super excited to give this game a try. Yeah, the non-existent, I guess, protagonist, the child in this game, because they're basically protecting a child, is a little young. And some of the worries strikes me as being a little weird for the age range we're talking here, which I think is what eight and up or something. Thing. And the second adventure is about, you know, all those bedwetting problems. Yes. <laughs> and the ensuing flood that the stuffies oh have to Lord. deal with. As a teacher of elementary school, I can say, yeah, probably not that far off of point. Yeah. I love the idea of having the big spiral bound book where you have the map on one page and then the scenario specific rules on the other page. Yeah. And there are some choices in the text on the side. And it's always a two page spread, very consistent layout. It is a little annoying in that you can, you know, see everything right there because it's wide open on the table. And so the temptation to cheat a bit <laughs> is totally there. It works really well. I was I was generally impressed with, you know, how cleanly it was laid out and how easy it was to follow. Yeah, the dice system is actually really clever. Basically, each die is tied to a strength, dexterity, wisdom, search kind of thing. And you pull them out of a bag. And that's the kind of things you can do on your turn. And some of the items let you, you know, change dice, use dices if they're different color and that kind of thing. It's a really consistent system that actually has a little bit of thought going to it. And it actually mechanically is much more interesting than Mice and Mystics and simpler. Do you ever run into a situation in which like, hey, you pull out all the fighty dice, but you really don't want to fight a thing? Yes. Like, okay. Absolutely. You can always use any die to move. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, you're just screwed. Okay. <laughs> I mean, a little bit of random there isn't terrible. And you can store dice in between turns. If I yeah, correctly. you can store dice. So you can get one die that you can keep for a future case. And you can transfer dice to other people. So there's a fair amount of helping going on. We didn't feel screwed by the die, except occasionally when <laughs> we draw black dice, which yep. make them move. Mm. Sounds fun. I think it was right. The last game we had on our main list sort of brings us full circle. It is Choose Your Own Adventure, House of Danger, 2018 Z-Man Games release from Prospero Hall. Who is not a real person. Just want to let you know. Yes. <laughs> a pseudonym? Totally. This is uh, a pseudonym for a an advertising design company. I think they're in Seattle. Oh. Yes. Insider information only here on a set of board games. So yeah, this is functionally the first Choose Your Own Adventure book kind of recreated in board game form. It's got a fairly simple stats and health system sort of bolted onto it. You've got what, mana and stamina? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And basically you're going through the house, drawing cards, choosing what you're going to do, you know, choosing the form of your own adventure, and trying to survive the house of danger. As a game, it's fine. It is honestly an enormous nostalgia bomb for those of us who grew up in that time period. I mean, just looking at the cover art is 
really an amazing recreation of that whole series of paperback books. And as soon as I saw that, it, it hit me square in the nostalgia gland and I had to go and pre-order a copy. I literally saw this from like across the hall at Gen Con and my head just pivoted over. And I'm like, I have to go see what that is. Because like, it is so distinctive. I know that design. I know that outline. <laughs> and I think I literally read like books one through a hundred of Choose Your Own Adventure as a kid. So like the art is just, it's so on point. It's beautiful. Mechanically, does it change anything? Thing from those original Choose Your Own Adventure books? The originals didn't them. have any stats at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was literally yeah. you just make a decision, uh, you, you follow go, a branching go tree to page. until you succeed or die. And you right. get items in this one too, right? You, yeah, you get items. There is a kind of branching structure. The game's divided into five or six chapters. Each chapter definitely has an end and a obvious beginning. And you won't see all of the game. You may see half or a little more than half of each of the chapters on a run. So there is, it is potentially possible to replay. In fact, when you get to the end of each chapter, it asks you if you want to take some extra time and go back and do some other things. There's no time penalty, but you may take a health penalty just from dealing with the crap. One other weird thing it does is it gives you clues on what you should do, what's good and bad. There's a giant piece of art on the back of the stat sheet that it lets you stare at for one minute, <laughs> which has a few clues that are helpful in some situations. It's a giant Dixit-like mass of big huh. things piled in that, well, maybe clues, maybe not. So it's like uh, the surrealist art. Yeah, it's your dream at the beginning oh, of the... Uh, <laughs> and it is based on, I think, what was the first Choose Your Own Adventure book? I think the first one was actually Cave of Time, now that I think about it, but I'm not sure. One interesting thing is the theme of this one is uh, stuff. You know, there's everything in this. Right. Name some kind of genre specific. Yeah, it's there. Romance. <laughs> wow. Okay, fail. There's Barbara, Barbara Cartlin is still our benchmark. That's still, our, still our winner in that department. <laughs> So, Brian, I just want to put some perspective because you keep talking about growing up with Choose Your Own Adventure games. I grew up with Choose Your Own Adventure books as well. They were R.L. Stein's Goosebumps. Uh, Choose Your Own Adventure Lord. games. Mm, you can stop talking now. Well, you know, stuff always circles back around. So yeah, that was the end of our main list. There are certainly a couple games and things that we had talked about when putting this episode that sort of have choose-your-own-adventure-y paragraphy elements. There are things like the Crossroads cards in Dead of Winter have a little bit of that. There are some encounters in Gloomhaven that have some sort There's of paragraphy of, I mean, bits. like, all, almost all the road encounters and the city encounters are read a set of text and make a choice. Yeah. Right? It's, like, not a core mechanic, but it's a pretty big mechanic, and, like, you unlock a fair number of things from those options. They do have long-term consequences both on like how your city is situated and also like items that you have available and stuff like that. Yeah, so. if you wind up befriending these guys in an early encounter, they'll have another card show up in the deck that maybe they come back and help you later. So we didn't really go into it because it's not central to the way the game works because there's so much going on in Gloomhaven, but it certainly fulfills all the categories. Functioning much in the same way, Kingdom Death Right When you're traveling to a hunt, you randomly generate encounters, and those encounters are functionally paragraphs, right? So there's not like a cohesive story, but you do randomly encounter functionally paragraphs that you have to deal with in some way or that affect you in some way and can have permanent effects, like killing some of the people who are trying to travel. Which is pretty much always what happens. Which is pretty much the entire point of Kingdom Death. Cancer pigeons. Yes. It's pretty amazing how well paragraph games and adventure games go hand in hand together because, like you said, Brian... 
a paragraph game is a great way to tell a story in a condensed form. So like Descent does this in their campaign mode when you're going from the city to where the adventure takes place. You've got encounters that happen on the road that tell a story much like what you later see in Gloomhaven and Kingdom Death. So like it's pretty interesting that we're getting these adventure games with some of these light storytelling elements in them. Yeah, Gloomhaven is also neat because it does some of the same things Frank was talking about with Stuff Fables where you'll have an encounter there's, oh, there's a flock of birds flying overhead. Do you try and shoot them down for lunch? And there's one version of that card where, hooray, yeah. everybody gets an extra rest at the start of the game and there's another one where oh, well, it turns out that they Sturgeous. were being chased by a dragon and, you know, <laughs> right. but uh, so yeah, you can't just choose the same thing every time. And then the other one that we kind of wanted to mention is not actually out yet but it looks like it's going to be the new 800-pound gorilla of paragraph games. Oh, yeah. And I backed it. It's called Madara, and it's a Final Fantasy Tactics kind of game coming out by Succubus Games, I believe. And really, the charm of it is a 450-page paragraph book. Wait, wait. Go back to the Final Fantasy Tactics? Wait, what is they're, this? They're going all anime-themed, and it's a very kind of, yeah, Final Fantasy Tactics. I mean, there's color spaces and different types of mana, and a a lot of different power-up items. And it's like 150 different skills your, your characters can learn or something crazy yeah, like wow. that. It's a huge, it's a gloomhaven size box. But huh. also, again, it's mostly text. And it's enough text where it's like 25 hours of red audio. And they're including an app with all that audio and getting two uh, professional narrators. To that's going to come out <laughs> someday. I mean, Probably I also I also kickstarted January, it, yeah. but it's never, ever coming out. January. Sure They're saying is. January. They, Probably it's, February. It's how, many, how many years behind is it? It's three, three years, years now? Yeah. It's three years late? So, January, year unspecified. That's really... <laughs> exactly. Some January. It's really interesting that they have the audio version of the paragraph book because I immediately go to another game that we've previously discussed on this podcast, which were the old VCR games. Oh, God. <laughs> I think the acting may be a little less hammy in this. Well, that's unfortunate. Sure, but... But again, that is a fascinating branch of paragraph games where it's like, hey, play this audio recording. Why was that never investigated further? Actually, Dungeons and Dragons TSR did a whole series of audio CD adventures where basically when you went into a room, you got full cast audio, which sounded like a bad radio play <laughs> of a D&D party doing it with all the characters. That's interesting. And, oh, and frankly, during the, during the period of the Laserdisc games, there were certainly some sort of elements elements where you could choose and it would skip to the appropriate section of the laserdisc to play the scene that you went in. None of them were very good, but they were there. Yeah, I can think of a, a couple other games that I wanted to talk about briefly. Folklore kind of brings this whole thing full circle. It's a Greenbrier Games 2017 by Nick Blaine and Will Donovan with a lot of writing from Ed Greenwood, whose name may be familiar with D&D players and all the Forgotten Realms stuff. But anyway, it is really a fantasy RPG, but with paragraph books. The nice thing it does is that every time you go into a battle, there's a unique battle map tile printed on really 
thin, thin cardstock. And there's 50 or 60 of those instead of having to, you know, make up your modular map board. I'm also reminded of a couple ones that we played a while back at the Oasis. There was the escape from... Oh, the Dark Castle. Yes. Yeah. Again, it's just going through a series of cards and dealing with them, but it had some vaguely paragraphy bits, that and the Forest of Fate. Again, you know, you encounter a thing and you have to choose who is going to use what skill to try and get past it. And, and On your little reaction matrix yeah. on the card. Yeah, yeah so totally. There's a lot of stuff that sort of dances around the edges of paragraph games, but as far as full, big, meaty paragraph stuff coming up, I think Madara is going to be the big one on the horizon. Yeah. Do we want to do a round of favorites? Mine is clearly time stories. I don't think anyone has any doubt in the universe no about that one. No one was surprised by that. Man, favorite paragraph game for me has still got to be Tales of the Arabian Night. That game is such a big, giant, random bundle of fun that there's just no way I could not enjoy it. I I, I do really like Arabian Nights. Like I said, it's the first one I played, but uh, I'd say in terms of ones I really want to get back to again, I really want to play Agents of Smirsh again. I know we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that here, but it's essentially, you know, <laughs> think of Arabian Nights, but themed with James Bond. Bond. I mean, that's awesome. James Bond slash Austin Powers. So it's, got, yeah, it's not yeah, entirely it, it, serious. It is definitely not entirely serious. Although, <laughs> or maybe, you know, like Roger Moore era James Bond. <laughs> yeah, but it can get like super dark sometimes. I remember my, my agent got chased up a tree by some guard dogs and my, my action was, okay, well, I'm going to attack them. I murdered the dogs and used them as shoes to get out of there. <laughs> wow. So they called my spy dog shoes for the rest of the game. <laughs> I would play more of that game. I, th- I think it's a great game. Yeah, especially the expansion that came out for it really oh, yes. helps because the original end game was pretty much, hey, do you have all the things at the end of the game in the right place? You win. Um, and now there's an actual end game on it now, which is nice. Man, as far as favorites go, it's really tough for me. I mean, we've already talked about how deeply I love Star Saga. It's Barbara Cartland, just saying. No, <laughs> I haven't played that one yet. I can't call it my favorite. There's going to be a run on those. I, know. <laughs> I mean, I love Legacy of Dragonholt just because of the intricacy of the interwoven stories. But again, I don't think it has a ton of replayability. I think at this point, I'm probably going to have to go with Seventh Continent, but it's not a clear-cut favorite. Only if you don't play with anyone. so much stuff. <laughs> I enjoy the game. And uh, if no one else enjoys it, I'll be happy to enjoy it by myself. Yeah, having played Star Saga three times, replayability uh, manages. You just have to forget long enough and play it since I've 15 years in between each play of Star Saga. It only takes me about four years because my memory is shit. Yeah, good point. Uh, but no, I'm definitely Legacy of Dragonhold. It constantly, while we're playing... We'd be surprised with, oh my God, what if we hadn't done, or what if we did this? What would be the other? Robert Frost would be happy, basically. (laughs) But no, that's, it's so, it's nice, it's recent, it's fast enough, and it plays well. You know, Frank, I didn't think about it, but the the what if quality of a paragraph game is actually pretty good measure of how good that game is. Yeah. Like just, just thinking back through, it's like, man, what if we had chosen this other thing? What would that have done to our game is a pretty interesting metric to measure a paragraph game by. Oh, totally. And Legacy Dragonhole wins. Which is why I love Time Story, because you get to explore <laughs> all of those opportunities. It's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it works for something like it doesn't work as well for Arabian Nights because, again, giant bag of random. But no, it's a valid point. There's not replayability in the sense that you kind of know what the story is on a lot of these. But it's like, I wonder if I could have gotten to that ending this way. I definitely want to play Legend of Dragonhold now for sure. Okay, yeah, 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 we should do that thing. So anyway, that's it for our episode. So thanks again for listening. And um, please like, share, subscribe, etc. You guys know the drill. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. 
Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. This is going to be another one where pronouncing the designer names is going to be a whole adventure for everyone. Oh my good lord, you're not kidding. No, no. Uh, That's why I'm so excited to hear you do this one. (laughs)